Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. I'm joined by Emily Hunt, who is Head of Insights at Portland. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, So, our listeners are probably aware that there was a presidential election Perhaps in, a little bit. Perhaps a little bit in the U.S. last week. Um, a result that was uh, a shock, I think, to many people, um, particularly because of so many of the polls going into the election. Uh, the day after the election, you wrote what I thought was a, a very interesting post on the Portland website, and we will, we will link to it um, in the podcast page where you explored some of the reasons why the pollsters got it so wrong. Um, And of course, this came after a couple of elections where the pollsters got it so right, certainly in the US at least. You had had Nate Silver from 538, you know, predicting, it seemed to be predicting every, you know, every county almost. Yeah. Um, So let's start with, with... the, the basic question here for you, Emily, how did the pollsters get it so wrong? That is not a basic question. That's a really <laughs> big question. Um, but we can start off with why I started to feel like they were getting it wrong, because I think that's a, a pretty good place to start. Sure. Um, so back in August, there were a couple of news stories that came out sort of one after the other um, that really seemed to make all of my Democrat friends really, really happy. And, um, you know, any Trump supporters that I know get really worried. Um, mm-hmm. And that was Hillary Clinton was leading in every poll at that point with anywhere between three and 15 points ahead. Um, mm-hmm. But the one that really, really got me wondering what was going on was um, there was a survey that came out that said that literally 0% of African Americans in Ohio and Pennsylvania were going to vote for Trump. Right. And And why did that worry you? I learned really early on in this business when a number sticks out like that, it's usually one of two things. It's either the story, like literally what you need to hunker down on and really analyze and, you know, understand because it's what's happening or it's an issue with the research. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the journalists um, and the Democrats seem to do is to really run with it rather than sit down and genuinely think about what was underneath that number. Now, we know now from the CNN exit polls um, that in Ohio, 8% of African-American voters voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And in Pennsylvania, it was 7%. So, you know, that's that's a good bit above zero. Mm. Um, so for me, what happened with the polls is that, you know, somebody was asking questions um, in, you know, a telephone survey. And people know how surveys work at this point. You know, they know there's going to be a demographic section at the end. And honestly, I think you had some minority voters who didn't feel comfortable admitting that they were for Trump because Mm -hmm. all of the language around Trump was that, you know, he's hateful, that he's about white supremacy, Mm. um, that he's bad for minorities and things like that. But I think that it's unrealistic to expect that in the Rust Belt that um, any that any group who might be having issues economically wouldn't necessarily have that Trump message resonate around deporting immigrants. Mm. Um, so mm. it just it just didn't feel right. Um, so when I started digging into it, I just 
started to think that fundamentally the polls were treating this election like it was any other election. And really, if you think about it, you know, I, I've, I've studied American politics um, and campaigning and um, worked in politics in the States before I moved over to London. Um, and I just can't think of any model for this election. There was no election in American history that I can think of where we had two absolutely hated celebrities running against each other to be president. Mm. There's no precedent. There's no model. Um, so if you're going to ask questions around how people are feeling and how they're going to vote, you know, from my point of view, the thing that you have to do is throw out the playbook and start over again. You need mm. to get back to basics on how to get underneath the skin of how and why people are voting. And gen genuinely, I think the problem with the polling in this election is they just used the same questions they've used for, you know, the last 25 years. And mm. I didn't talk to people in my circle mm. in the same way about this election. So why would we talk to voters in the same way? Why would we think that they would give us their thoughts and their view on the horse race and their likelihood to vote if we were asking questions in the same way. Interesting. So part, part of it you, you put down to the fact that they were asking the wrong questions. Yeah, um, absolutely. How much of it is down to not being able to adequately analyze the answers and the data that they got? I think it's a couple of things. So, I mean, one of the things that has gotten quite a lot of coverage um, is whether or not people who take surveys are representative mm. of, you know, people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a big conversation that's happening now in the U.S. and happened here um, after the the results being wrong for Brexit and for the general election. Um and, and that is a really interesting question, um, and it does lead to how much do you weight different groups when you're doing the analysis. Um, it can, however, be gotten around by asking questions in a different way, doing microsurveys, um, asking lo a lot more attitudinal questions, and um, you know, using different kinds of analysis tools to figure out your horse race from there, rather than just asking a straight-up direct question, um, because that way you can kind of create your view of the universe in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of one part of it on the analysis side. But for me, it does continue to come back to how you write the questions and how you design the survey. Because Nate Silver, brilliant man that he is, can only do so much with the data at the back end if the questions are wrong, if the targeting is wrong. Um, mm. So, I, I mean, I would love to see, you know, the data from... Um, any of the newspapers doing the, the public polling um, or, you know, CNN. I'd love to see how they asked their questions. Mm -hmm. um, no one's going to give it to me, but <laughs> I would yeah. absolutely love to look at it because mm -hmm. I think that that's where the postmortem on this really needs to start. I don't mm -hmm. think we need to do hand-wringing around, you know, um, whether or not online survey um, sample is overpopulated with Democrats. I think we need to think about how we write our questions so that that doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think we do need to, you know, write surveys that are interesting for people to take. Um, you know, if, if you think about what it's like to take a survey, right? And um, I've done this. I've taken big surveys that I've put together for clients and actually piloted them in a in a focus group facility so that they would, you know, the person would sit there with somebody next to them, talk through how they're feeling about the survey, talk about what they understand about each question, what it's asking. Um, and 
doing exercises like that has absolutely changed the way that I write surveys because mm -hmm. the proper, um, you know, best practice methodological approaches to do all kinds of crazy things like max diffs and trade-off exercises and all these things that are, you know, more mathematically rigorous. But at the end of the day, people taking the surveys want to throw the computer against the wall. So you get junk out of it because you're asking things in the wrong way. Um, mm. And no analysis is going to transcend a poorly written questionnaire or a poorly worded question or um, just pretending that somebody is going to be okay taking a 99 question survey um, that's just boring. Mm. Um, so if we're going to do the hand wringing about, you know, the people who take surveys, I think it, it actually needs to come back that step to let's think about making it interesting for people to take surveys. Let's make it so that they don't stop taking the survey partway through because it's boring and they've answered the same question 16 times. Hmm. Okay. And, and you mentioned the fact that, you know, surveys don't take place in a vacuum. This was an election like no other. There are obviously yeah. a lot of forces at play that we haven't necessarily seen to such a great extent in previous elections. Do, do polling models and, and survey design for these elections, but, but do they take place in a vacuum? I mean, is there this assumption that whatever we've done before will, will work again? I think, I think to a certain extent that's human nature, right? That's not mm. even just polling. It's if, you're, if you've done something that's worked really well before, you tend to take the architecture of it and repeat it because it's worked, mm. you know, and, and, and that that's, that is anything that is anything from, you know, designing a building to writing a survey to designing an ad campaign, you know, like when you know something works or you think something works, you tend to repeat it a bit. It is just genuinely how people are. Um, I think that, you know, when you go back to the basics on it, um, I'm sure that a ton of research was done, um, at least on the Democratic side, because as we know from um, Trump's uh, financial records, he didn't spend very much on polling. And that which he did spend, he has refused to pay for um, mm. <laughs> to the tune of like $700,000 that he's mm -hmm. got an unpaid bill for. Um, you know, I, th I, think, I think at the end of the day, there has been a practiced way on how questions were asked about politics. I think that, you know, all of these, um, the private polling and the public polling, they have their list of attitudinal statements. They have the way they always ask the horse race. It has worked for donkey's years. So why reinvent the wheel? And at the same time, they were probably thinking that they want everything to be the same so that they could model it back to previous years, thinking that that would help them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think that the problem from that is that nobody really sat down at the beginning of this process, or at least when it became clear that it was going to be Trump versus Clinton. Um, nobody really sat down to completely change the way they were thinking about it, right. as far as I can tell. Nobody went back to basics to go talk to voters um, in a neutral setting to find out what was actually going on in their lives and how this election was impacting them or their thinking. Um, you know, what was really happening for them on a personal level with the way that there was so much hate with, you know, the topics that were coming up with, you know, the fact that everybody's talking about the, the post-fact um, era, mm -hmm. yeah. um, where people were getting their information from, all of that. I, I just, I don't think that anybody did the proper qualitative research at the beginning to understand that everything was different. Mm -hmm. And then 
completely redraw the way presidential polling was done on the basis of now, because we are not in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. not even a little bit. And to pretend that we are just does a disservice to everyone. Mm. Um, So, yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that the moment was not taken apart and understood for being different. And um, people just kind of uh, plowed on forward on the idea that everything would be the same. Right. Okay. Now, we've had, in in the UK at least, we've had a couple of elections where the pollsters have got it wrong. So it's actually not such a surprise on this side of the Atlantic. It's different. Oh, it's so different. Mm. This is something that's come up for me quite a lot, actually. Um, and I think it's one of the things that, that I've, I've said about this election when I've written about it, um, that it's a, there are very different reasons for what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, some are the same, like how you ask questions about um, you know, a topic where it's very emotional on one side and is very rational on the other, like Brexit. Like The Brexit arguments were very rational on the Remain side and very emotionally charged on the Leave side. And using you know, survey methods that would work for something else, you know, didn't necessarily work for that. But actually, when it comes down to the general, um, we have kind of too many constituencies to do proper research. Um, We've got 650 constituencies, Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the states, we've got 438. Um, So to do the amount of polling needed to get good trending data, you know, we've got some tiny constituencies Mm. um, that are marginal and are important when we, um, you know, when we vote for parliament. Um, And we just literally can't do the research. to do it. You know, there's just not enough people. We can't talk to them enough in order to get good trending information, um, uh-huh. which is not me saying that we should, you know, slim down the, the houses of parliament just to make my job easier, you know, to do research because yeah. that would not be the right reason. Um, but it does make it harder to do um, constituency level research here. And considering, you know, the only way we know who's going to be prime minister is who gets how many seats. Yeah. Um, whereas in the States, you know, for the electoral college, um, we've got the 438 different districts, um, and then you've got state level. So that's what adds up to your 438. Um, and we can do research on that level. Um, Mm. so I think if they'd asked the questions the right way in the States, they could have had absolutely accurate modeling. Um, whereas I don't think that we can have absolutely accurate modeling here um, mm. for constituency level politics. And and in the U.S. election, how much of the reporting around the polling do you think was was influenced by this this idea of confirmation bias? That that's because so so many of the media were, you know, were endorsing um, Hillary Clinton and and clearly didn't want Trump to win. How, how much of of that do you think impacted the way that the, the polls were reported and some of the things you, we saw, you know, Huffington Post saying that I think Hillary Clinton had, had what, a 90% chance of winning? I think it was, I think it was higher. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I think there's a really big difference in the way um, the polling was reported this time for 2016 versus 2012. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of what you need to look at in order to unpick 
um, confirmation bias from the media in terms of polling on this one. So for 2016, you know, Fox News's polling wasn't that far out from anybody else's. Mm. Um, and the the right, not not the full on alt right, but just the right um, wasn't. Um, wasn't saying that Trump was going to win any more than the left was saying. Um, whereas mm. in 2012, um, you had Fox News um, having um, people on over and over again talking about how the surveys were overrepresenting liberals, that, you know, um, mm-hmm. you had right wing people saying that Nate Silver was too effeminate to do the math um, and that he was going to be grossly wrong. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Um, mm. I'm really actually happy. America's moved on a lot in the last four years. Um, mm. Some bad, some good, but that's, mm-hmm. that's a better one. Um, so, you know, in, in 2012, Fox News was making it a close race and saying that the polling was wrong um, in order to make it seem like there was actually a horse race between um, Romney and Obama. Whereas this time they weren't really reporting the polling differently, which I think is why you had um, Trump trying to delegitimize not mm. the polling, but the actual democratic process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that they were trusting what they were hearing um, mm. because you were hearing the same things from the right that mm. um, that. Clinton was going to win or that it was, that it was quite close. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily think that it's confirmation bias because the right wing, and again, not the alt-right, cause you do have to separate them out. Um, the, the right wing media was still seeing, um, Clinton ahead in the horse race. Yeah. Um, although apparently I, you don't have to separate the alt-right and the right wing anymore. If Trump's, really? wh- if Trump's white house is any, uh, is any oh, yeah. indication. <laughs> given who he's put in as yeah. um, chief of staff and his new, what is it, chief strategic something chief, or other. Chief strategist and counselor, I think, will be. Exactly. Uh, and they're going be... to be co-leading the team while he's in New York. Um, That's right. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one. Mm. Um, you know, I... I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, that's what I was saying before this election, that um, I actually I wrote a piece on LinkedIn the week before the election saying mm-hmm. that I genuinely didn't know what was going to happen and that this is the first time in, you know, my proper adult life that I didn't I didn't even think that I knew what was going to happen, let alone get it right. Um, mm, well, and... you know, I mean, at, at the very least, you you showed a measure of reservation, which I think yeah. many others didn't. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'm I'm a Cubs fan, and my team won for the first time in 108 years. I was really hoping I was going to have a good week. Um, <laughs> well, I guess one out of two is not bad. I would have preferred Hillary. Yeah. Um, okay. yes. <laughs> no, it's it's um I don't know. It's a really interesting time, and I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know how he's going to lead. There have been articles in the paper um, over the weekend about how Obama is going to um, mentor Trump more than is normal because he, Trump apparently wasn't aware that he has to hire an entirely new White House White House staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, encouraging. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 good fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think people are obviously they're sick of experts. And this is just, this is the logical conclusion of that, I imagine. I've been, 
I've been trying to find solace in, um, you know, like Greek philosophy and, you know, previous um, democracies and democratic theory. And unfortunately, mm. it's really not providing me with much solace at the moment. Um, yeah, as... I mean, maybe maybe for, for future <laughs> generations it will. Yeah, but... <laughs> Socrates and Plato will remind all, as will everyone, that, you know, you can only have a democracy if you have good education. Yeah. And, and good um, media. What we've been doing with education on both sides of the Atlantic for the last generation is just not good enough. Mm. Um, so I guess from that point of view, from a very big picture point of view, I'm not that surprised that yeah. emotional causes are winning. Well, I don't know if you've read um, Francis Fukuyama as well. He writes a lot about the conditions under which democracy thrives. And yeah. um, his point of view is, yes, you need good education, you need um, strong independent media, and you need strong institutions, and um, you need all of them. If, if any of them, yeah. I think, is lacking, then, then it's an issue. But, but going, back, going back to the... Um, <laughs> Actual to the, topic at hand. <laughs> well, well, no, this is, I mean, this, what else is there, really? This is all the actual topic at hand. Um, going back to the data, it's interesting because you talked about how Nate Silver had kind of just conquered election polling i mean i think you know he had his breakout which i think was was 2008 when he kind of forecast everything so precisely and in fact in the face of many other polls yeah he was 49 out of 50 states in 2008 50 right. out of 50 in 2012 yeah and and often you know against the consensus as well certainly in 2008 um but of course not 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 so much um this year and now uh as you know, maybe we should expect in, in, in the kind of media culture we live in, the, the response has been, oh, well, well, that's it. That's the death of polling. That's the mm. death of big data. It's, it's just junk science. And, um, you know, that, that, that era is over. And so as someone who, who is a head of insights, how, how do you respond to that? <laughs> um, well, this is the thing, right? Insights is both art and science. It very much is. You know, I'm, my job has never really been to forecast something out to a decimal place, um, mm. you know, on where we are exactly right now. My job has always been much more about, okay, you need to understand where we are now so we can understand how to move it. Um, and that's always what's interested me. Um, I think from the point of view of, you know, our clients and potential clients, I don't actually think all that much changes um, because what we're doing is really, really different from horse race style political polling. You know, mm. we're doing things like helping clients to understand what messages are really going to connect with their target audience. We're helping them to understand who that target audience is. Mm. Um, you know, we work, you know, both locally and globally. Um, and my team is incredibly mixed method. So, you mm -hmm. know, like I've moderated focus groups on four continents um, and done online surveys on six. I keep joking, I absolutely need to get that like Antarctic something, you know, like employee <laughs> engagement survey just to like round out my stats. Mm. Um, but for what we do, you know, we do the kind of work that, doesn't occur in a vacuum. You know, my team hears me, you know, bang on about all the time about the fact that people are biased. We can't pretend that the point of research is to create a perfectly unbiased questionnaire going out to a perfectly unbiased sample, because in reality, 
my clients are out there in the real world. There is no vacuum at all. Mm. Um, so perhaps it's actually, it comes from my work life, from knowing how people are talking about topics, how people are feeling about anger, which is something that we work on here quite a lot, actually. Right. Um, and, okay. you know, getting to grips with how people are making their decisions. Maybe that's actually why, for me, the polling started to feel wrong back in August, mm. because my team hears all the time, like, there is no vacuum. Doing research like we are in a vacuum, there is no point. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe... Maybe what needs to happen actually is for that kind of agency mentality, you know, where we help our clients to understand the real world. Maybe that needs to come out more into the public polling um, where Mm -hmm. maybe we need to worry a little bit less about, you know, the model working for the last 25 elections and instead start to think about each individual moment like it is because... Mm -hmm. You know, no moment is the same as another. Um, And we wouldn't let our clients pretend that every moment was the same. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So so maybe that's maybe that's where the hand wringing needs to lead to Mm -hmm. um, a recognition that there is no vacuum. And we need to speak with people the way they need to be spoken with, not the way we feel like asking a question. Sure. Interesting. Do you think this also perhaps uh, supports the case for research that tracks people's behavior rather than just their attitudes and views because presumably you're much less well it's much harder to lie about about behavior than it is about what you think absolutely you know i am i'm a big fan of using data from whatever um, source i can get it from so if clients have data on where people are actually clicking on their website we can mm. map that back to you know us talking with people um in focus group settings about how they feel about things and then we can then map that back even further to how people are responding to online surveys um mm. so we can build a really full picture um, we also do a lot of work here with social media so we do hand coding of things happening on social media so that we can look at it from that point of view. Mm. So absolutely, I'm a big fan of, you know, stated opinion and behavioral data mixed together with everything, because why wouldn't we want to look at all the data we have? Mm. You know, I think that there's a lot of the time when people do too many surveys with too many questions that are really, really boring, when in reality, you could just get that data from the back end of your website. You know, you don't really need to do a survey about how people are clicking on your website when you could just look at the data that you already have. So I think it's just recognizing that lots of organizations have information. um, Mm. And sometimes what we need to do from the research is not not to know what the behavior is, but to understand why the behavior is. Mm. Okay, interesting. And um, what do you think happens next to, you know, the polling industry? Um, Because presumably it will have to work reasonably hard to rebuild confidence after this. Um, You know, I think it's I think it's hard for me. Um, I mean, I, I get a lot of benefit from sort of being on both sides of the Atlantic, um, you know, and having my heart in politics on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, most of my work has been either UK or globally based. Mm. I've not really been a part of the U S polling industry ever. Mm. Um, so I think, 
I'm, I'm a little bit on the outside from that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think part of that also comes from the fact that, you know, I would never encourage clients to do truly boring research. And I think that a lot of um, your bread and butter research houses are just churning out really boring numbers. And I'd really mm. like this to be a wake up call for them on doing research differently, but I don't know that it will be, mm. um, you know, not all research that's being done needs to be done. Just, it just doesn't. And, you know, I've got friends, um, who post screenshots of bad surveys to Facebook, um, and then hold me to account for it. Like it's my fault that somebody wrote a really bad question about dog food in the States. You've got some um, wild friends. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i think i think as an industry it's something that i've been saying since before this you know we need to do better on asking questions the right way for the people who are answering them and um you know maybe this will cause the industry to get there um mm. but you know maybe it won't and, and on, a, on a broader note to finish you know i've seen a couple of 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 points of view out there, people saying that, you know, we've been fetishizing big data for too long as it is and putting too much faith in numbers as a way to just not necessarily to make better decisions, but to defend bad ones. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's your view on that? Well, I mean, I think everybody's always had a client who says that they need to have a survey done um, or, you know, a social media analysis done, but they know what the answer needs to be. And you are, you know, made to help them get the answer that they need internally. Um, mm. I'm not a big fan of stuff like that. Um, and most of my clients now, actually all of my clients are not like that. Um, Portland's quite cool that way. We've got, um, just some really genuinely awesome clients who want to know, um, what the real, what's going on in the real world essentially. Um, but I have, had clients in the past where they don't actually care. Um, it is just a box ticking exercise. Um, and you know, from that point of view, yeah, you know, you can just use bad survey data or, you know, an overwhelming amount of unstructured big data or whatever to get to the answer that you already want. Um, but for us, what we tend to do is, look at the information and just try to find a really different angle on it. Um, I don't know if you've, maybe you saw the movie, um, but there's this book called Moneyball, mm, um, yeah, which is about, um, there you go. Fabulous. So as you know, it's about um, sabermetrics and it's about mm -hmm. taking the exact same statistics that everybody had on all of the baseball players um, in the States and building a team mathematically. Um, and it works. You know, and at the end of the day, the point is that they had access to the exact same data that everybody else did. They just looked at it sideways. Mm. Right. So I think that, you know, in this, let's just trust big data to tell us what's going to happen. You know, people aren't necessarily asking the right questions of the data that they're looking at, and they're not necessarily using it for the right purpose. So I don't think that we should throw out data. I don't think that we should throw out polling. I just think that we do genuinely need to think about it differently. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. And I think ultimately, whatever, um, whatever the merits of data, none of it will predict what's going to happen um, in the Trump White House over the next... Uh, 
couple of months uh, or even the next no, couple of years. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen in the Trump White House, including Trump. Hmm. Well, on that note, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Um, and we'll look forward to having you back on the show soon. No worries. Thanks very much. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm joined today by Paul Holmes. Welcome to the show. Hey. It's, um, it's been a while since we last had you on. And during that time, there was an election in the U.S. There was? Yeah. Well, you are lucky if you hadn't actually heard about it, I think. But I suspect I, you have, not least because you wrote a 5,000-word story on the website this weekend. Yes, never been happier to with my decision to move back to London. Well, yes, of course, because you have Brexit to look forward to here, I guess. Less Which is worse, evil. you think? I've heard people... So I agree with that, um, because I think... And I'll just say it, I think voting for Trump is a much crazier choice than voting for Brexit. And I think voting for Brexit was crazy enough. But I've seen a lot of people saying that at least Trump is reversible. Um, that's an interesting idea. I, ask me again in four years. <laughs> First of all, I mean, no, look, there are going to be aspects of the Trump presidency that are not reversible. I mean, right. the damage done on climate change, for example. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say I don't have kids, so why should I care? But the reality is that I do. Um, and, you do have kids? Um, is this, a, is this, yeah, an, is this no, an exclusive? I do care. Is it? <laughs> I do care. Okay. And, um, I, you know, I suspect, I, I suspect that, um, I suspect that there, I mean, that, that, that a lot more people will be irreversibly damaged by this than by Brexit. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, Brexit was, um, you know, I think more, uh, more justifiable, frankly, um, than this, but what do I know? I'm a, a member of the out of touch liberal elite. Well, I suspect that we're going to touch on this as we move forward, mm. but so many of those concerns are rooted in a misapprehension of reality. Mm hmm. And that, fear, right? Um, you know, that, that, that sort of pandering to them um, seems offensive. I mean, you know, mm. these, are, these are people who believe that, um, you know, illegal immigration has been going up when it's been going down, that mm. the economy has been going down when it's been going up. Um, so I think, you know, the big issue here is how do we, how do we break through um, to those people with with the facts, how do we um, how do we arrive back at some sort of shared reality or agreed reality? Mm. Yeah, and you know it's something we discussed in detail earlier in the year when we did the, the podcast on the post truth era. Post truth is now is it some word of the year or something I saw today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, this this is 2016. I think the word of last year was. Was my, it a, was my an wife emoji. Told me that it was entered into the Oxford English Dictionary. That yeah, was... That, that was it. Yeah. Whereas last year, I think it was it was all emojis. But this is what the world has come to. Your story was excellent and very detailed, and I would recommend everyone um, listening goes and reads it. Uh, you got contributions from lots of people as to um, as to how this happened and what this means. And I wanted to actually uh, talk to you about one specific thing or a couple of specific things. Um, 
But first of all, I wondered if we could look at the role of the media in all of this, because this has traditionally, of course, been the way that people get their information. And it's probably worth asking to start off with, given that so many in the media quite clearly endorsed Hillary Clinton, uh, is this is the media still as influential as it once was? Um, I think you can probably argue, I think you can probably argue both ways. So a long time ago, a friend of mine, I don't even remember who it was, um, said that, that two apparently mutually exclusive things were pretty much always true at the same time. The first is, if the media says something that um, reinforces an existing belief, mm -hmm. people will say it's there in the papers, it must be the truth. Mm -hmm. um, if the media says something that contradicts a pre-existing belief, they will turn around and two minutes later say, well, you can't believe anything in the papers. Um, and I think that's what, you know, I think that's what we see today. If the media, if the media says something that you you already agree with, mm -hmm. um, it reinforces that belief. Right. If the media says something that is contrary to what you believe in, it also reinforces that belief. Um, hmm. And I, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do about that. But, um, you know, so you saw this, I think, with a lot of, um, uh, of, of the mainstream media coverage of this campaign. Um, and I, I'm looking at it, as you might imagine, from the perspective of Trump supporters, because I think, you know, how they arrived at where they are is the interesting story here. And I think whenever they saw a story about Trump, they either, uh, and his, you know, various reported misdeeds, his, you know, lengthy career as a sexual predator, his um, court cases, his... You know, various trials and tribulations, they discounted it either as an example of media bias um, or as simply not relevant to the discussion at hand. Um, when they saw negative stories about Hillary Clinton, um, whether it was, you know, the New York Times investing, and, and there's plenty of blame to go around here. I suspect we're going to have some fun over the next whatever it is, 20 minutes or so, um, blaming everybody in sight for, for what happened. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, what you saw something like the New York Times investing thousands of thousands of man hours invest, investigating um, the Clinton email scandal or the Clinton Foundation. Uh -huh. um, in both cases, I suspect it became very rapidly apparent that there was absolutely nothing of substance or certainly nothing, um, you know, rising to the level of, of criminal or even really ethical transgression going on. And yet, because all of that energy had been invested, there was a need for the New York Times to publish something because if you spent thousands of hours, you can't just let it go to waste. And so they published, you know, smear and innuendo um, in in place of in place of factual reporting, mm. um, and ended up reinforcing the views of of those who were deeply skeptical of 
the Clintons to begin with. Mm-hmm. And how much blame, I mean, as you said, there is a lot of blame to go around, but how much blame do you think that the media shoulders here, certainly in terms of the, the traditional media giants, do you think this is in any way a, a failure on their part to, to not have been able to decisively influence this race? Well, I think I think there are two things. I think there's the long-term failure that the mm. media has allowed its credibility to be eroded over years, um, and then I think there's a short-term the short-term failure, which was essentially, you know, it it, it was a mix of the um, the false equivalence that we've seen play out so often in the media that if you know if if you do a story on the trump foundation um you have to do a an equally damaging story on the clinton foundation mm. um, you know if 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 you want to come you know if you want to point to one wrongdoing you've got to find wrongdoing on the other side too regardless of whether the equivalence is is meaningful or relevant um and um, and and the mainstream media's loathing of the Clintons, which goes back decades and has been sort of you know almost self perpetuating. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's fairly clear that we you know we got into a point where the Clintons became so secretive and so paranoid that they behaved in a way that simply reinforced the mainstream media's. Uh, existing skepticism and cynicism and it ended up being a sort of self-reinforcing cycle um and you know again plenty of blame to go around Mm. and in terms of their coverage of trump i mean how did you view that because there's there's a lot of talk that they were they were too easy on trump i mean obviously you had uh some some tv channels um giving him a, a ton of airtime in terms of his rallies, but in t- the print media as well, I think there was the people saying that you know, they treated him as a curiosity for too long, uh, and didn't examine his record uh, rigorously enough, but you know, would it have made any difference? Yeah, so that, that's the issue for me. I mean, I think there are two things. I think, first of all, certainly in the, in the initial stages, you know, the, the the Trump phenomenon was treated almost as an entertainment story. I mean, you know, the, I'm, I'm not just talking about the Huffington Post covering it on the entertainment pages. Mm. I think, you know, it was, it was covered as a sort of sideshow that was more entertaining than it was threatening. Mm. Um, and then it seems we le- leapt straight from that to um, normalizing Trump. Mm. Um, you know, the, the People magazine cover this week um, being the most egregious post-election post example. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, but your question of whether it was ma- would have mattered is, um, is a pertinent one. I, I, I think that, you know, the majority of people who voted for Trump were not getting their news from, from those sources. They were not shaping their opinion based on what the... 200 newspapers that endorsed Hillary Clinton um, said, or even the six newspapers that endorsed Donald Trump. They were getting their news and information from very different sources. Um, and that's one of the, you know, one of the phenomena that, that you know, we've, we've written about quite a bit in the past and everybody else has focused on too, which mm. is 
um, you know, that, that everybody now gets to choose their own bubble and mm -hmm. get their news and information from their own trusted sources. And they're not necessarily the, the, the trusted sources that you or I or, you know, most of the people um, listening to this podcast would consider to be authoritative, credible, um, you know, trustworthy sources of information. Yeah, well, and and we know that in, in many cases they're not even true. Right. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the issue of fake news has really come to the forefront, I think, in the last few days. The New York Times um, has published a couple of stories uh, basically saying that Facebook... Facebook's tolerance for fake news and the fact that fake news is reinforced, for, you know, depending on what you're clicking on, the way that its algorithm works, right. uh, played so, a role in the election. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Facebook had um, the now notorious story suggesting that the Clinton campaign had, um, you know, had a FBI agent and his wife killed because they were investigating Clinton, which obviously, yeah. um, you know, but, but then if... If you run a, I'm not sure if this is still true today, but it was certainly true yesterday. If you run a Google search for um, the popular vote results in this election, the second or third story um, was a story that Donald Trump had won the popular vote, which again is just absolutely not true. And the source? Um, sorry? The source for that? Ah, oh, hang on. Now, see if I can still find it. Well, if you can't, um, don't worry. But that's. Yeah. But I. But I think it was. I think it may have been. And I, uh, you can't see air quotes um, in a podcast, unfortunately. No. Um, called the yeah, called the Denver Guardian. Um, oh, sounds reputable. Exist. Oh, right, it doesn't exist. It's a non-existent newspaper that, you know, has been used to create fake headlines. I mean, there's. Yeah. I, you know, I just, and, and look, I don't, the, the First Amendment is, is, is incredibly broad and certainly doesn't prohibit you from lying to people on a grand scale, mm. um, nor necessarily do I think it should be. But, mm. but when, when, when the, 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 the algorithms at Facebook and Google are allowing this stuff to show up in such a prominent position on um, on your homepage. Uh, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. It is, um, but, but what's the solution? Because, as you said, you know there is First Amendment First Amendment protection for freedom of speech. There's, I mean, there's no real regulation of the media. And I'd argue there shouldn't be. So. Right. Right, but this, I mean, so this challenges some of the things that those of us who, you know, believe in, uh, believe in a free and open debate and believe that ultimately, um, you know, people who are truthful will be more credible than people who are not truthful. Mm. Um, have been arguing for years, and uh, you know it, it, it would it would take a, uh, a a much stronger person than I am to come through this election um, with their faith in that notion unshaken. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, you know, you would like to believe that you'd like to believe that at the end of the day. Um, OK, so if you go back, if you go back and look at some of the big misinformation, disinformation campaigns in history. Right. So you look at something like the tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, for for however long it was, 20, 25 years, the tobacco industry continued to put out propaganda suggesting that, you know, tobacco was, in, in some cases, downright healthy and part of a, you know, <laughs> part of a robust, healthy diet. Um, and, and in other cases, you know, at least not harmful. Um, and eventually, you know, I think we got to a point where almost everybody acknowledges that that's not true, that tobacco is, in fact, a, a harmful product. Uh, the conclusions that you draw from that in terms of policy may vary from one person to another. But I think we all acknowledge that tobacco is not the best thing to ingest on a regular basis. One would like to think that over the long term, the same would be true on an issue of climate change, that even though there are people who continue to deny um, that climate change is man-made, that it's harmful, that you know, we should be doing something to address it. Eventually, there will come a point where we all agree in the same way that we now all agree about tobacco, that, you know, climate change is not a good thing and needs to be addressed. Um, but I think there's certainly a case to be made that winning that argument is more difficult hmm. in an environment where, you know, some people have gotten much more skilled about um, uh, about propagating disinformation. Um, and, uh, you know, coming back to the central point of the story I wrote this weekend, um, where there's no trust in authority. There's no trust in the authority of mainstream media. There's no trust in the authority of business. There's no trust in the authority of politicians. There's no trust in the authority of academics and experts. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to be a world in which you can find somebody, you know, somebody who is credible to somebody else to say almost anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is just a, this is a result of the social media era, it would appear. But certainly, certainly it is exacerbated mm. by... You know, the, the, the whole idea of the sort of, you know, merchants of doubt, mm -hmm. there's no question those merchants of doubt, you know, the people who would who would say, well, you know, it's not quite settled yet whether global climate change is, is a man-made problem. It's not quite settled yet whether, um, you know, CO2 emissions are bad for you. I mean, I, all of this stuff, right? It's, it's, it is so much easier to sow doubt today than it, than it was 20 years ago. It certainly seems that way to me. Mm. Um, but I, but I, you know, I, I don't. If the solution isn't to counter lies with truth, if the isn't, if if the solution isn't to try and restore credibility um, and rebuild trust, then there's no solution. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to, you know, certainly those of us who are in the persuasion business. Um, have to continue to believe that um, that at some point, you know, the facts, the truth, reality will win out. Mm. Yeah. The alternative yeah. is much too bleak to contemplate. 
It is. And last question, while we're on the topic of, of, of blame, I mean, and, 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 you know, to refer this to business. This is the most depressing podcast we've ever done. By yeah, way. I suspect that, we, you know, we've, we've got <laughs> listeners who are, who are <laughs> a little depressed by this point. Um, the, it's, it's always, I think, a little uh, risky to refer to business as a kind of homogenous entity. But how much do you blame business behavior for, for this election result? Um, I said at the very, at the, the very outset that there was plenty mm. of blame to go around. There's no question that there, you know, that, that business has contributed um, in a fairly serious way to the erosion of, of institutional trust, right? Whether it's, um, whether it's the role that the financial services industry played in the global economic meltdown, um, you know, a decade ago, mm-hmm. um, whether it's pharma bros charging egregious prices for life-saving medications. Yeah, and um, buying rare Wu Tang albums. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whether it's um, whether it's um, those in the extractive industry who have been part of the climate change denial movement, um, or whether it's simply, um, you know, people with a ton of money corrupting the political process or, or you know, um, certainly um, appearing to many people to have corrupted a co-op. Business is not, um, business is not blameless. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's I'm not sure it's top of my list of mm. the the people who are responsible for this. Right, because my next question was going to be actually, and I know you you firmly believe that public relations can be a force for good, but public relations people and firms have been there every step of the way to help business when it comes to facilitating the kind of behaviour you've just described. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, and, and there is, you know, the, the thing that, um, the thing that probably offends me more than anything else is, this is, I mean, this is probably not true. There are probably other things that offend me much more. But one of the things that offends <laughs> me more than anything else is, is intellectual dishonesty. And, and I do feel that there has been a vast swathe of American business has used intellectually dishonest arguments to avoid responsibility um, for the externalities of their action. Um, you know, I, I, I point to people in the oil and gas industry, I'd point to people in the financial services industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'd point to a, to a lesser extent, honestly, to people in the pharma industry, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't share sort of rabid dislike of, of the pharmaceutical industry, but um, I do think that there have been um, lapses of judgment and um, of integrity in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, and 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 we could, you know, we could probably sit here for for half an hour and come up with a list of. Um, of every of companies in every industry, um, you know the the Volkswagen scandal of 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 whatever it was two years ago, um, 
is just another example of this of of of, of people bending, twisting, um, and, and in many cases outright breaking the rules. And by the way, nearly always getting away with it. Mm. Um, you know, nobody nobody got punished at all for the financial services role in you know, banks' role in, in the global economic meltdown. I mean, you know, people there are people quite clearly who should be in jail because of that and are not. And the only reason they're not is because they're phenomenally rich, they're phenomenally powerful, and they get to write the rules. Yeah, and there are now uh, cabinet positions available. Yeah, yes. Yes, the, uh, if, if the swamp is being drained, it's only because everybody who used to live in it is going to live in the White House in the next uh, four years. In fact, you know, I think the White House was built on swampland. Yes. But I digress. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, well. <laughs> this has been fun. Yes. The podcast Despair brought to you by Paul Holmes and Arun Saddam. Yeah, but, you know, if this is rock bottom, then then things will oh, get better. trust me. Trust me. Things are only going to get worse. <laughs> oh, God. The next four years are, mm. um, are, are you're going to see, a, I suspect, a perfect storm of people who want to do truly evil things, mm -hmm. uh, being empowered by an administration that is too incompetent not to do evil things by mistake. Mm -hmm. And those two things are not going to cancel each other out. They're going to compound each other. It's going to be a very difficult time, I think, for a lot of us. I'm actually just putting my faith in the fact that you predicted the election so wrong that maybe you're <laughs> predicting this so wrong, too. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Paul, thanks a lot. We'll have oh, you back on my, soon. Um, yeah, pleasure. Okay, cheers. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 